Welcome to the Tally Room Podcast. I'm Ben Rowie. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the surge in pre-poll voting and the campaign in New South Wales, both as part of the federal election campaign in the lead up to the May 18 election. My guest today is Rodney Smith. Rodney is Professor of Australian Politics at Sydney University. Hello, Rodney. Hi, Ben. Yet again at this election, we are seeing a big increase in the number of voters choosing to cast their votes early at pre-poll centres across Australia. There's been significant growth in the raw numbers of pre-poll votes at every federal election over the last decade. Over the first week of pre-poll voting, we saw 660,000 people cast a vote. This compared to about 315,000 votes cast in the first week in 2016 and barely 100,000 votes cast in the first week of pre-poll in 2010. There's no sign that this surge will slow down, although there is a little bit of evidence that the increases in pre-poll are bigger in the earlier parts of the campaign. So we have to assume that this election will yet again break the record for how many people have voted early, with possibly as many as a third of all voters casting a vote through pre-poll, as well as others who vote by a postal ballot. Rodney, what impact do you think this increase in early votes has on the flow of the campaign? Well, I think it's starting to have a, an impact on the flow of the campaign in the sense that parties are cognizant of this rise in pre-poll voting and so they're responding by releasing policies earlier and, and moving campaign launches further towards the start of the campaign. So for about four or five decades now, we've had this tendency that the, the official launch of the campaign has been towards the end of the actual campaign in order to grab the attention of voters who it's assumed will some of whom will only be starting to think about the election in the last few days. Uh, and so you have your launch then, you announce some big policies then even, so that you get maximum impact. But if you've got a lot of voters voting early, then that makes less and less sense. So parties are responding by announcing policies earlier uh, and moving their campaign launches earlier. It also has an impact on the campaign on the ground in that you have to have representatives of your party at the pre-poll centres, the early voting centres, uh, in order to hand out how to vote cards and you know answer questions from voters who are coming along to vote. That that seems like a particular problem for small parties, and it's a it's a very it's a difference to what happens at state elections, right? Most possibly all state elections uh, have pre-poll for two weeks, whereas we have it for three weeks at federal elections. That's right. So the pre-poll um, period was extended to three weeks um, several elections ago now, and that has made it more difficult, uh, as you say, for minor parties, independents to staff those uh, early voting centres for that longer period of time. They, they simply don't have the resources. The major parties in some cases also struggle, but they've got less of a struggle because they've got more committed supporters uh, who can, you know, take some time uh, off. They've got older supporters probably who are retired, have more time. They might have supporters uh, and even staffers who can can do that, uh, candidates who can do that. But for the minor parties and independents, it's, uh, it's a difficult proposition. Do you think there's there's an impact on the, the kind of question of when we make a decision about how we vote? If you know, it used to be the case that nearly everyone voted on election day, and there was a there was a small group of people who would vote at other times. But that having that stretched over a few weeks, because I mean, yeah, campaigns can be important, but I, I don't. I'm sort of struggling to to work out my opinion about 
is is it actually important? Does it actually have an impact if if people over the course of a three year election cycle there's there's a three week period rather than a one day period when most people make up their minds? And I I don't know if that makes an impact on kind of our way we way we function as a democracy. Well, I think we're all struggling to work out what this change means. Um, it, it's, it is difficult to tell, and there hasn't been a lot of research done on it in Australia. What we do know from some other jurisdictions around the world um, is that early voters tend to be, not surprisingly, people who've already made up their mind. They're party identifiers. Um, they know who they want to vote for. And so really the campaign's going to make absolutely no difference to them. You know, the most disastrous thing could happen to their party and they would still vote for it. On the other hand, we do know that in Australia there's an increasing number of voters who don't have a party identification or don't have a strong party identification. That is, they don't habitually vote for one party or another. And so for those voters, the campaign, well, I agree with you, it isn't, you know, decisive uh, for everyone. It is decisive for some voters. So this early voting period, assuming those voters, some of those voters who haven't made up their minds, you know, in the in the sort of the three years before the election, make up their mind early, vote early for whatever reason, those voters may be missing out on information that they'll get later in the campaign, which might have changed their vote. Now, I don't think if you work it out, if you do them, you know, mathematics and you work it out, divided across the 151 seats and work out, you know, which of those are marginal seats and how many people voted early in those marginal seats. It's probably not decisive in terms of who gets to be in government, but it may well be affecting who gets to win particular seats. A dynamic we've seen of the current term is that the uh, the Labor Party has been leading for a long time, not by very much, but you do get a, a sense of the polls don't move very much, that people that there is a tendency of people having made up their mind. Uh, and, I mean, maybe that has contributed to the surge. Having said that, like pre-poll has been surging at every election. So I think until we kind of see it level out at a certain level, we're not really going to be... I could imagine a situation where uh, elections where people have made up their minds and they're settled, you have higher rates of pre-poll than in elections where it's sort of more uncertain. But... Um, I mean, pre-poll is increasing so fast that, that that evidence is kind of lost in the lost in the noise of of the big surge. But uh, that certainly is is a bit of a dynamic in this election. That seems like a lot of people have made up their mind and stopped listening. Yeah, it does seem that a lot of people have made up their mind. But having said that, as you say, in every jurisdiction in Australia, uh, pre-poll voting is increasing. The proportion of people who are uh, voting on election day at a polling place has declined in every state and territory and a federal level. So there is a trend here. It varies a little bit from state to state, and that depends a bit on how easy it is to pre-poll and what other options are available. So we've seen the biggest increases in Victoria, for example, but you know other states aren't that far behind. Well, I was going to ask about this because my understanding is Victoria has a more uh, permissive approach to pre-poll that uh, they're more more supportive of it. Although generally, all electoral commissions around the country have sort of facilitated it and made it easier to do it. You know, more and more pre-poll centres are being opened. I remember probably would have been about a decade ago that most seats might have had one pre-poll centre, whereas now you have three, four, five, six pre-poll centres in an electorate. Um, 
But uh, do you think, I mean, do you think we're now at a point where we should kind of give up this pretense? My understanding is you still need a reason to vote pre-poll, but, you know, most people can give a reason pretty easily and that's the end of it and it's generally kind of, it's a bit of a fig leaf. Uh, do, you, do you feel like that's it's, it's that serves any purpose? Practically, I don't think it does. I mean, the electoral commissions would possibly deny this in public, but there's some <laughs> a fair bit of evidence that... Um, the need to give a reason doesn't stop a valid reason doesn't stop people who don't have a valid reason from pre-poll voting. Uh, in the you know electoral commissions and electoral officials in general aren't interested in turning Australians away from polling places when they turn up to vote. So uh, you turn up to vote early. The official says, "Why do you want to vote early?" You give a reason that may not be. <laughs> You know, it may not be a reason under the um, relevant regulations, but you'll get a you'll get an early vote, you'll get a pre-poll vote, um, and we know this to some extent because you know surveys of voters who have voted early and and the reason that they did, and you know the reasons that they did clearly don't align with the allowed reasons. So, um, yeah, I mean the the, the regulations, the legislation um, differs from state to state, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but it has had relatively little effect on this overall trend that more and more people are voting early. So it's clearly being driven by voter demand. Uh, it's difficult to see, even if uh, politicians wanted to reverse it, that they could do it uh, popularly in, a electoral, in an electoral system where voting is compulsory and therefore there's a kind of a bargain between the state and citizens that you know, voting's compulsory, but we'll make it as easy for you to vote as we can. Do you have any reason to think that it's a preference, not so much from a legal perspective, but from a resources perspective or a logistical perspective for the electoral commissions that is it is it actually easier for them if more people vote pre-poll and that kind of the burden of administering uh, ballot papers to people is distributed over three weeks instead of one day? Is there an advantage to that? I think there can be an advantage. I, I think this trend poses problems for electoral commissions because they've got to estimate the number of people who are going to vote early versus the number of people who are going to vote on election day. And if they can do that accurately enough and put enough resources into early voting, then it certainly does have an advantage for them. But there's a flip side if they underestimate the number of people who are going to vote early. Uh, or if, uh, as we saw briefly in the New South Wales state election recently, some of their systems failed during the early voting period, uh, then it may well be that voters you know, become equally disenchanted with the voting process, um, voting early as they, as they are sometimes on, on election day. Now, you know, again, from survey, you know, survey research, we know that even a small delay in voting on election day causes Australians to get, you know, quite annoyed. An hour's uh, disruption for an hour in pre-poll is going to have much less of an impact on voters than an hour of disruption on election day. So, you know, in a sense, it, it probably is better if those problems happen a week and a half out rather than not like at 10.30 on election day. Absolutely. That's true. Yeah. But, but if you have more and more people voting early on the basis that it's going to be more convenient, they can just pop out in their lunchtime and, and vote um, or, you know, on the way home or something, then, and they suddenly find that there, you know, there's a queue of, you know, 50 people or 60 people waiting to vote, then they, that convenience becomes lessened. So there is a challenge there for electoral commissions to get that balance right. 
and uh, there's they're currently like all public institutions they're under financial pressure um, early voting can help with that to some degree if if they get the um, if they get their calculations right or their estimates right about you know how, how big the demand's going to be that it is a challenge for electoral commissions to find enough staff on a Saturday who are looking for work and who are available uh, which means hiring a lot of new people you have limited ability to train people which I do think has a factor when we have issues like you know, ballot papers have been mishandled or, you know, we heard a lot of examples at the last election of um, voters being told you must number one to six above the line, uh, not that you can number more than six, for example. Um, And I guess, again, like staff who work at pre-poll, you're hiring them for three weeks. That probably makes it easier to hire regular staff who know the systems better and, you know, maybe they are just as clueless on day one, but by day three or day four, they know what they're doing and they don't have to pay penalty rates. But that only has an advantage if they can reduce the amount of staff they're doing they're using on election day and that would be very controversial to start abolishing polling booths or things like that. So um, I think we're still a little while away from seeing any savings from all these people kind of moving away from election day. Yeah, I, I think that's... Um... I think that's true. I mean, there, we, we did some research in New South Wales and Western Australia recently, and we surveyed people who'd worked in elec- uh, at elections, um, so electoral commission uh, employees or contractors, uh, and we found that while the sort of rates of problems um, experienced by uh, those poll workers who had worked during the pre-poll period and the pe- people who worked on election day were roughly similar, um, there was a suggestion that pre-poll poll workers were able to kind of learn from their mistakes um, that they that they you know made a mistake maybe in the well you know there was a problem and there weren't many problems I, I hasten to add the problem rate of problems was, was minuscule but if there was a problem maybe the first time around you didn't fix it terribly well but you learned from that uh, and it's certainly true as you say that electoral one of the big problems facing electoral commissions is training um, staff and finding uh, sorry, training uh, employees on election day and, and finding uh, poll workers on election day who have uh, experience, you know, handling people, giving instructions, understanding instructions themselves, even counting. You know, that in, in the past there, are, there was a sort of a reservoir of people like bank clerks and, and, and teachers and so on who are used to counting by hand, who are used to, you know, these sort of processes of handling paper and, and those sorts of processes are, are rapidly becoming... Um, a thing of the past. So electoral commissions do struggle with um, recruiting and training uh, poll workers. There's been all these candidates who've been disendorsed. Uh, we had a surge of them this week that was a little bit shocking. We've um, had six people disendorsed by their party uh, in the in the first week of voting on pre-poll. And that obviously has an impact as well that, I mean, uh, people who are voting later will, at least in theory, have the capacity to know that that person is no longer representing the party that that is printed on the ballot paper next to their name but for those people who voted early uh it's too late that's right and that's that's one of the criticisms of um early voting that is made internationally so in in the US for example in the uh, in the primary races people who vote early sometimes vote for candidates who by the time the you know the ballot period is is over those candidates have withdrawn from the race so those people have effectively lost their their vote now it's not Quite the same in the situation 
at the moment in Australia, but you, you may well have a situation where somebody has voted for one of these candidates on the basis that, uh, you know, either that they were representing the party or that they were a, you know, a fit and proper person to be elected and they discover after they've cast their vote that one or other of those things is no longer true. They can't take their vote back, so they just have to live with their uh, early decision. Now, whether, again, whether that affects a lot of people you know, when you break it down, um, difficult to know, but it would certainly, I would have thought, given some of the material that's come to light regarding some of these candidates, it would certainly have affected some people's votes. I guess it's a question of how you see voters. Like if you can look at voters and say they can make a, a rational risk calculation about the fact that they get the benefit of voting early and having it out of the way and the risk is that new information will arise and they have effectively... Um, you know, they've they've given up their right to express any further opinion, right? They've kind of locked their opinion into into stone and they can no longer change it. It's not that they don't have a right to express an opinion, but that right has passed by. Uh, and I, I kind of think, you know, voters voters can make that calculation themselves and make their judgment. And if it doesn't work out well for them one time, they can do it differently the next time. But my understanding is the evidence is once people vote pre-poll once, most of them like the experience and come back and do it again, which is part of the reason we're seeing this kind of ongoing cycle of increasing numbers. Absolutely. That's, both of those points are true. Um, and, I, you know, I agree with you that, you know, there is a sense in which, you know, you are as, a, as an early voter taking a risk that something may happen in the future. And so you either disregard that risk and, uh, or you take it into, into account. And either way, um, you know, you, you, you probably don't have much of a claim to say, well, you know, I should have um, been given a chance to, to vote again. Um, and again, on your second point, yeah, clearly early voting is becoming more uh, popular. People who do it once tend to do it again. Um, you know, the same is true of the, the, the non-in-person forms of, of early voting, forms like postal voting and, um, and the iVote in New South Wales. Um, for, for people who are eligible for that. So um, I think, as you say, either voters are, you know, kind of rationally capable of um, taking into account the, the chance that something may go wrong with their vote or they don't care. Um, you know, we've got to remember for a lot of Australian voters, they're, they're voting because it's compulsory. Um, many of them, you know, may really not care too much um, in the grand scheme of things if their vote turns out to be based on some kind of um, misinformation uh, because they're not collecting, a lot of them aren't collecting a lot of information in the first place and some of that information that they get through advertising and so on is, is bound to be, uh, you know, incorrect as well. So, you know, um, I think on, the, on you know, the, the objection that uh, citizens sort of miss out on full information, uh, a claim that's often made, sometimes rests on Kind of overblown arguments about the rationality of voters and the, the amount they care, particularly in a compulsory voting system. Um, you know, a lot of voters won't necessarily uh, be that concerned. New South Wales is Australia's largest state, which naturally leads to the state having a high proportion of the country's marginal seats. The coalition holds six marginals in New South Wales and Labor holds another five. Yet the latest polling averages suggest that Labor is lagging behind in New South Wales. The Bludger Track polling average from Paul Bludger currently projects a swing of 1.6% to Labor in New South Wales compared to a swing of 2.6% in Victoria and 5.1% in Queensland. Rodney, what races will you be watching most closely in New South Wales? Uh, well, I think 
the obvious ones to watch are the marginal coalition-held seats. Um, so that's um, seats like the seat of Gilmore on the south coast of New South Wales, Robertson on the central coast, um, Banks in um, Sydney, uh, Page on the northern uh, coastal region of New South Wales. Uh, and then you've also got seats which are less marginal held by the coalition but which seem to be um, highly contested. Uh, Reed, for example, in in um, uh, in a western sort of western um, Sydney suburbs, in a western Sydney suburbs, um, but there are also some interesting seats in rural New South Wales, which you know probably don't show up on the on the radar as being marginal in any sense because they're um, held uh, by you know large margins by um, the National Party or Liberal Party, but could be interesting because of um, the impact of uh, independent candidates. Um, and these are seats where at the recent New South Wales state election, uh, if we look at similar electorates, uh, the electorates that cover those areas, um, Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party did very well and won those seats or uh, independent, uh, an independent won those seats. So seats like Farrah, for example, uh, it might be interesting to see whether the independent in Farrah manages to uh, pull off uh, a similar um, uh, win in that seat as um, uh, the Shooters fishers and farmers uh, managed in the independent managed in at the state level. So I think there's, you know, wherever you are in the state, there's something for you to watch. There's still a decent number of seats which you could see Labor picking up, maybe not maybe not quite as dramatic as what it looks like in Queensland or Victoria. But um, you have, I mean, Gilmore and Reid are both interesting because they're seats where there's kind of been an impact on the sitting uh, Liberal retiring. Uh, Gilmore is an interesting one in that uh, you have... Uh, kind of three different candidates sort of representing the right-wing vote. You've got Grant Schultz, who was looking set to be the original Liberal candidate for the seat and was deselected and is running as an independent. You have Warren Mundine running for the Liberal Party, the former president of the Labor Party. And then you have Katrina Hodgkinson running for the Nationals, who is a uh, former state minister who uh, represented an area a little bit little bit further west. Um, so the, Gilmore is an interesting one where it's held by a very small margin and you would expect probably Labor to pick it up, but we don't really know what the dynamics of that right-wing co- contest might be and which of those right-wingers might come out in the end to face off against against Labor. So, that, I mean, that's one in particular I'm interested in. I think it is a very interesting seat for the factors that you've just mentioned that you have a, you know, in terms of a straight, Labor versus um, Liberal fight. It's a very uh, narrow margin, but then you then you add in the complication of a Liberal candidate parachuted in. Uh, you have uh, a former Liberal with a lot of um, recognition in the area running as an independent. You have a national candidate who's shown at state level in the past that she can take a seat that she's not expected to take. Um, so, you know, it is a very uh, interesting contest and uh, unless there's a big swing to Labor in that seat, I think it will be will be very interesting on election night to see what the dynamic there is between those three main non-Labor candidates. I mean, another one that is could be one of the few seats that might buck, a tr- buck the trend and go towards the Liberal Party is Lindsay. So Lindsay, which covers Penrith and surrounding areas in Western Sydney, has been held since the last election by Emma Husser. Uh, she was effectively pushed out um, from 
Labor pre-selection following some scandals involving her and her relationship with staff. Um, she She's retiring and the former state Labor MP uh, who represented the, the area is running. Uh, but there is a lot of talk around that area that the those scandals and plus the sort of partly the scandals affecting Emma Hussar but also the way she was pushed out may have alienated some voters and um, it's it's a seat where the Liberals are hopeful about picking up. Yeah, I think they've got some genuine, um, genuine right to be hopeful of picking up that seat. I mean, it is a seat that since the 1990s has, um, you know, moved between uh, the parties between the Labor Party and the Liberal Party, you have a you know a sitting Labor member disendorsed. Uh, you have um, uh, the scandal surrounding that. So there's a lot of dynamics there. It's on a very slim margin. It's not a uh, you know a classic kind of um, Labor seat um, or a classic Liberal seat. It's a, it's very much a mixed seat. And if you look at kind of the geography of that seat, um, you know, the polling places, uh, the vote for the major parties varies quite considerably. So um, that one, I don't think uh, either party would um, consider uh, a certainty. I don't think Labor would consider that um, they're certain to retain it by any means. And the other, I mean, the other category of seats, which I think are interesting, are Reid and Banks, uh, because there are like local demographic reasons that suggest that maybe the uh, Liberal Party is is strengthening in those areas over the medium term. Uh, that like suburbs along the Parramatta River and the Georges River are gentrifying and becoming more liberal friendly. Um, but in Reid, in particular, and they're also very multicultural seats that um, that they have a kind of a different dynamic to more outer suburban marginals. Uh, but Reid is a bit different to Banks because we had this situation of the sitting MP was very close to Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, and kind of left it to the last minute to, to drop out of the race and the coalition found it quite difficult to find a candidate but, uh, you know, seems to have found someone who is reasonably respected and impressive and um, that's going to be one that Labor would hope to pick up but uh, there are some trends going against them there. Well, there are. The factors that you've mentioned, again, sitting um, uh, sitting member uh, choosing to uh, retire very late in the piece um, some difficulties uh, in the Liberal Party finding a replacement. As you say, they seem to have found um, uh, quite a, uh, a good replacement in the end, but, you know, very late in the day. It's a sort of seat I think you would have wanted to be out campaigning, you know, fairly early, building up a profile. Um, Labor has chosen, you know, a high-profile candidate within sort of Labor circles, um, Sam Crosby, uh, he's probably, you know, during this stage in the campaign, it's probably a more difficult proposition perhaps. I know Labor was confident of uh, taking this seat some time ago, but um, given the state election results in that um, area, there may be, uh, it may be more difficult than, uh, than Labor uh, first considered. Um, you know, having said that, I think it is a seat where, you know, once the campaign proper has been underway, it is one of those seats where there has been a lot of campaigning, a lot of uh, out and about, meet the voters, lots of posters. So uh, it will be highly contested, I think. Uh, and of course, there's you mentioned Farah. There is there is actually, on my count, at least four places where independents are running serious challenges. 
Uh, well, one of those is a seat held by an independent, which is Karen Phelps in Wentworth. That race does appear to be, again, looking very competitive. Uh, but there's also, as Ali Stegall in Warringah, you've got uh, Rob Oakshot attempting a comeback in Cowper, covering kind of the Port Macquarie Coffs area. And like you said earlier, uh, Farrah, which covers kind of Albury and the, and the northern side of the Murray River. Uh, so those those races are definitely uh, in play. They're, they're certainly making life more difficult for the coalition in terms of opening up a second front. But, you know, it is quite possible some of those people could get elected and could be influential if if the election is close. Yeah, it's possible. Um, I'm a little sceptical about um, the chances of all three of those uh, independent can- candidates you mentioned. Um, I mean, clearly Rob Oakeshott is a well-known figure in the electorate at having represented it or sort of similar, you know, nearby electorate at state and federal level. But I think there's probably a certain level of resentment also at the at his support for the um, minority government of Julia Gillard. I think that is probably still at play in that electorate um, and probably counts to some extent against him. In Wentworth, Karen Phelps pulled off the by-election win. It was narrower than many people, including... I think Anthony Green on the ABC thought was going to be on on the night, um, and I and I just think that in a national contest where you know that government is up for grabs, you know a lot of the people who voted for Karen Phelps may well move back to uh, the Liberal Party. A lot of Liberal voters who switch to her rather will will move back to the Liberal Party in the context of an election in which you're really deciding for the lower house, you know, who's going to to govern. So casting a protest vote in a by-election, even one that, you know, puts government into minority or, or helps put government into minority is different from an election in which you're choosing uh, somebody who may or may not make up the um, the government. And I also think the other thing that Karen Phelps struggle, will struggle with is that she didn't really have a lot of time to, she hasn't really had a lot of time to establish a profile as a member of parliament as opposed to her, you know, very high community profile. You know, um, once independents get in, it's often difficult to dislodge them, but that's because as independent MPs with a three-year term, they've got the chance to get out and about as the MP, make announcements, open things, you know, deal with community issues. Uh, she's had very little time to do that. Waringa, I, I just suspect, is a bridge too far for... Um, an independent. I mean, even despite the dissatisfaction with Tony Abbott, I just think it's a, a too difficult an ask for an independent to um, uh, to win that seat. One thing to sort of talk about in terms of New South Wales is the possible impact of the state election being so close to the federal election. Um, I mean, it's not entirely clear what that impact would be. I mean, Labor clearly didn't do as well as it as it hoped in New South Wales at state level. I don't think realistically it was hoping for to win government, but the swing, uh, in fact, the, you know, the primary swing was was against Labor. There was a primary vote swing against the coalition as well. But you know, notionally, in two party terms, Labor improved its position a little bit. But the difficulty with translating state election results in New South Wales to federal election results is the optional preferential system used in New South Wales state elections. So, you know, it's difficult to, to tell what impact that might um, have. It seemed to me at the time that Labor may well have been sort of hanging fire a bit at, at the state level and waiting 
for the federal election to come along because it had a much better chance of picking up seats in New South Wales. And I think we've seen a more robust campaign from Labor in New South Wales. But even so, it may well be that, as, as you said at the start of the um, a podcast, that this uh, state, New South Wales, may have a lower than uh, average uh, swing to Labor, if there is a swing to Labor in the end, uh, and that that may affect um, you know Labor's chances of victory or Labor's chances of securing you know a big enough swag of seats in majority to feel that it can govern confidently. I, I think it would be silly to uh, directly try and map state election results onto federal, but I do think it's interesting that uh, generally the Liberal Party in Victoria has. Uh, not really been able to um, convince people particularly much. The Liberal Party in New South Wales at a state level has been a bit more moderate than the Victorian Liberal Party or the federal Liberals. I don't know if that's having an impact. Um, but it does appear that there there is some different dynamic. It could just be that federal issues are playing out differently in those two states, that, you know, the, the ousting of Malcolm Turnbull... Um, didn't work as well for Victorian voters, for example. But there definitely does appear to be some different dynamics where, I mean, I, I believe Labor Labor did a bit better in terms of picking up seats in New South Wales at the last election than they did in, in similar states. So uh, there does appear to be some kind of dynamic that is uh, making things a little bit harder for Labor in New South Wales than, than in, at least in the other big states. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's correct. Um, and, 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 I guess that's that's why one of the reasons why it's difficult to to translate those state results. And there were definitely things in the state election uh, campaign that are, that are very different from the um, uh, Labor's uh, campaign in this federal election in New South Wales. So um, at the last election, the swing to the Labor Party in New South Wales was actually higher than the national average. So. Um, there's some, you know, there's possibly some suggestion there, as you say, that you know the nature of the New South Wales coalition government um, uh, had an effect on, on that. But um, you know, these things are very, very difficult to tease out in any kind of reliable way. It's difficult to work out exactly what's causing different state effects. So that's about it for this episode of the Tallyroom Podcast. Thank you, Rodney, for joining me. That's my pleasure, Ben. So you can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. Information about this podcast is available at www.tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to thetallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Krista Bro for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>